Welcome to Well Tempered, a podcast about the smart, creative, and crafty women in the chocolate industry. I'm Lauren Hynek, a storyteller, community builder, and chocolate maker at Weekend Chocolate. On this episode, we'll speak with two stellar ladies from the upcoming documentary Setting the Bar, a craft chocolate origin story. They're both involved in very different areas of the business, Amy a producer, and Elaine a chocolate maker and co-founder. Although by coming together on this project, they're amazing proof that there is much opportunity for creativity within cacao and chocolate. Hi, everyone. I'm so excited to bring Amy Burns, who is the producer on the film Setting the Bar, a craft chocolate origin story, and Eileen Reed of, she's going to help me out here, but a chocolate making company in Atlanta. And let me give it a stab, Chocolatal. You are are so close, Lauren. It is Chocolatl, um, and our full name is Chocolatl Small Batch Chocolate. Thank you both for being here. Yeah, hi, nice to be here. Amy's going to start things for us here. She has been working for the last year tirelessly to bring to life a beautiful documentary with her husband, Tim Shepard. And I'm just going to kick it off with her to share with us what that was like to work on something that is going to be so beneficial and crucial to the growth of craft chocolate. So setting the bar, a craft chocolate origin story is currently in production, um, hopefully towards the end. So what it's basically going to tell the story of chocolate from the bean from the Amazon rainforest to the bar, um, to bar in high end cafes and stores in the U.S. Earlier this year, we went on a trip uh, to the Peruvian jungle with four different chocolate makers um, from around the U.S., um, And we went to the Peruvian jungle because that's where the oldest genetic varieties in the world are of cacao. So along our journey, we took boats, planes, buses, trucks, you name it, to communities that don't necessarily make chocolate. In the areas that we went to, cacao is like very undervalued because of the bulk market. So what a a lot of the film is about is it has like a big environmental angle that... um, so a big part of what Steve, which is one of our main characters, is doing down there is trying to get people to, who don't want to continue in cacao to keep what they have because they're cutting down all these trees to be able to have like a more profitable business. So they do like cattle, African palm or soy. Um, so we went down there trying to tell them that they have something interesting. We would like to make chocolate out of it and see if it's something that they could make money with because these chocolate, these craft chocolate makers who went down there are, will pay over market value for these beans because they're so special. Yeah, so it was a big adventure. And along the way, we had ups and downs. And now we're in the U.S. filming some experts around the country. And let's stop there for a moment and, you know, mention some of the people that are involved in this film, because you just made a nod to Steve Bergen. Who else are sort of the main characters and protagonists that help make this happen? And how are they going to be able to shift that landscape at origin in Peru and beyond? Mm-hmm. Um, so Steve Bergen is, I guess you would call him like a cacao consultant. We met him about over a year ago um, in Guatemala, just randomly at a bar um, and he started talking to us about cacao and what's going on and how he doesn't have a, a home. He, he spends his life traveling through Latin and South America trying to like save the rainforest through cacao preservation because he finds that that is like the best way to be able to help the rainforest. That's his life. And that's like what he does um, all the time. And it's depending on the seasons where he goes. So that's why we met him in Guatemala. Um, and then He was telling us about the chocolate makers who came down. So we just got in contact with all of them to see if they would be, they would be okay with us to come with them and to document this. So the chocolate makers that came down is Elaine and Matt from Chocolato, Nate Hodge from Rocka Chocolate, Ryan Burke from Parliament Chocolate, and Dan Radigan from French Broad. Awesome. That's a, this is a really good cast of characters. And 
Elaine, you're here. Thank you again for, for stepping in. We can't wait to hear your story in, in just a moment. Amy, with within then the context of this film, the impact that you're hoping to create uh, and the future of cacao, not only at Origin, but also for consumers at that final you know, purchase uh, point of sale. What did you see or what did you feel like within the making of this? And maybe what do you hope to be some of the final outcomes? Yeah, so originally, um, I was just like everyone, like probably most people where I didn't even know like what the pod of a cacao looked like. Like I had no idea where chocolate came from or why it was important or even that it was a fruit or anything like that. So I think that's quite interesting that we're like so... Like so many people know what chocolate is, but like so many people have no idea anything behind it. And that is actually like a big theme throughout like a lot of our food that we eat, that we don't know what's behind it. This is like a really good example of that um, because there are these people like these craft chocolate makers who are trying to like change the way business is done um, to be able to like have a good product. And when you're buying like a $10 chocolate bar, for example, you're a part of this whole movement that's behind it. Like you are making a difference by buying this $10 bar of chocolate because they're, they pay the farmers. Well, they are doing the right thing. They're trying to get people involved and like sourcing and why it's important and where to know where your food comes from. So you're part of like a movement when you buy this bar. And so we're trying to tell that story and why it's important. And there's just so many different aspects to it as well that it, it keeps the story keeps getting bigger and it's really hard to narrow down. Sure. Um, yeah. And yeah. the time frame that we have. <laughs> of course. I mean, it, it does. I love that you mentioned that it is a movement that you become a part of something bigger than, than yourself as a consumer or as a maker, or as someone um, at origin. And I was just a bit curious to your origin story. How have you been involved in sustainable food projects before and particularly maybe on that filmmaking side that has led you now to to tell this story of origin? I grew up overseas. So I left the U.S. when I was two from American parents. My mom was a nurse for the Foreign Service. So I moved four years to a different country my whole life. So I grew up in Liberia, India, El Salvador, Morocco. And then I went to film school in San Diego and after college, I got an internship working in Bolivia. I made a series of films uh, for a company called Sustainable Bolivia that worked with like at-risk youth. Um, so that got me more involved in the in the area. So I know Bolivia well because I was there for a while. And then because I grew up in El Salvador, I speak Spanish. My husband and I, we were in San Francisco uh, before we left the U.S. and we drove down through Mexico and we were we stopped in Oaxaca for a couple of months on our way down um, to Guatemala where we met Steve because we were working on a project for an online magazine from San Francisco um, about women who work in Mezcal. Um, we were there for a couple months working on that, so that was really interesting. We made some films for one of the best knife makers in Mexico who makes knives for the president and politicians and movie stars and stuff because he was very special. So it was kind of like everything that we were doing. And then my husband did a lot of work for NOPA in San Francisco and like some projects they were doing. And I don't know, it just all of our work, everything kind of went together. And so now we just, we just started focusing on food um, because that just seemed to be where we were headed and the things that we were interested in doing and focusing on food has been really cool because it it connects there's so many other things behind it like it's not just food it's culture it's it's environment it's health it's so many different things that you can explore through food so then when we met Steve and he was telling us about what he does we found him to be really interesting in his lifestyle and it had to do with food so it was in the our right category and then as we kept looking more and more into it yeah i mean we just kind of fell into it and then we really committed <laughs> Yeah, that's for, that's for sure. And this will be your first full length feature. Is that correct? Yeah. So everything else we've done has been a lot smaller scale. And I would love to expound on that uh, comment that you made that you've really committed this time. What does that entail? And as being a producer on the film, what are your day to day? What is that like now? And what was it like? As a producer role, I'm just doing research and contacting every single person who I can find who um, is in this world. And then, of course, like logistics of trying to get people on board. 
I mean, everyone who's worked for us so far has done everything for free, which has been great. So like trying to convince people who are our friends, like in our connections to help us out in a project that like means something. And then, yeah, so all the logistics of like getting people there, money, budgeting, um, we're trying to raise money now. So it's kind of all of the logistics. <laughs> Is it a make or break it? I mean, you have so much of the film now recorded and you're doing so much work through the editing process to make it come to life. If you don't hit your Kickstarter goal, and for the audience, we will share this this link uh, within the show notes so that people can can lend a hand to help this come to fruition. But what... You know, we're talking to some listeners and within the audience here that doesn't maybe understand the the costs of making a film. We we understand a ten dollar chocolate bar and we want to propagate that throughout the world. But can you go into a bit more about why is that so expensive and what will happen if you do or don't hit the goal? Yeah. So what's most expensive for us, at least in this film, is just paying for people's time because people who are like a specialist in coloring or an audio mixer and that's all they do, like that's expensive and it's good. Cause it's like, it's good that they are paid well, but it's just, it's hard. Like that's where the majority of our budget is, is just trying to pay talented people to work on it rather than having less talented people or we could do it ourselves. So anyway, so our Kickstarter if we reach our goal, that's just such a small chunk of what we need. But what we're trying to do is just be able to pay the people who are working in post-production for us at least something <laughs> because people have spent a lot of time on it. But either way, I mean, the film is going to get done. Um, it's just more of like a quality issue and like how long it's going to take if Tim and I are the only ones doing it um, and we have to do everything on our own rather than getting professionals in a certain like topic that we need, um, like a graphic designer, like that really helps. Right. So, Absolutely. um, make your film better. Or like we have a composer who's like doing all original music for us. Like it, it would be great to pay him because the problem that we're having is that we have great people who are working us for us for free and us as well, <laughs> but paid work comes first, of course. So things just take forever when you're not paying people and you can't really so I just know people who have done their first film and it takes like five years to complete mm -hmm. because you know other things come first and then of course there's tons of expenses like all the flights to Peru and we had a friend of ours who was a really great videographer like he came with us so we paid for him to come to help film and so just like hotel rooms flights I mean all those things just add up when you have a big group of people yeah. And so then once the film is made, what are some of the goals that you and Tim have set out to achieve within maybe how many cities that it's screened in or, you know, things of that nature? Yeah, so we're still trying to work that out. We don't we have like a like a broad distributing plan at the moment that I think once the film is made and we because the thing is, we've we've been spending so much of our time on production and that's just what we're trying to get done. We have a rough distribution plan that might change. We had we've had a couple of universities reach out to us wanting to partner with them from like an educational standpoint, because the cool thing about this film and what we found interesting about the story, it, I mean, from what I've found, there's no other films like it. Like a lot of the films that are about cacao now are about like child slave labor in Africa and like really sad things. <laughs> like this is like a positive story and how we're, people are making a difference and the good things that's coming out of it and what people are doing. And so we might do the educational route through universities. I mean, we definitely want to get it to some film festivals, but that's kind of TBD at the moment. We have to kind of work out a whole bunch of stuff sure. <laughs> before I can give you a better answer. <laughs> No, I'm really glad you brought that up, actually, because, you know, this is such a burgeoning industry at the moment, the, the craft chocolate scene. And there have been other industries that are often compared to chocolate, cacao, that being, you know, wine and coffee. And you've had in the last just five years, excellent documentaries and kind of narrative style filming where they've they've followed those in the industry and told the story from their angle, whether that, you know, comes to mind Psalm that I believe I saw on Netflix about Psalm My Years and a film about coffee that has, I think, just in the last couple of years been released. So this is very exciting to have this within from the perspective of myself being a, a chocolate maker and and all the others who are involved in this supply chain that we can as you said, see something that is positive and made with love and care to make people appreciate this this ingredient and all the people behind it. Yeah, I totally agree. 
So kudos to you for, for the oh, ideation and, yeah, and for bringing it to life. Plan. So hopefully that's, that's what happens. <laughs> we'll be rooting for you. I was wondering, you know, within some of the things that maybe you experienced on the ground. So you mentioned in the details on the Kickstarter page that it was the Amazon rainforest. And could you be a bit more specific to the geography and maybe, you know, if that entails a certain peoples that the average person might not be in the know of? Yeah, so we were in the Yuko Yali region. We're actually not allowed to say um, more specific than that because um, the people who we worked with, there was a lot of worry that if we mentioned exactly where these places were and who these people were, that people were going to come down and take advantage of them. We're going to see how things go, but at the moment, we're not allowed to say any more than that because we're trying to respect the way of people's life there because we went to indigenous communities like very far out in the middle of nowhere that do not have contact with the outside world, that they have these amazing cacaos that are very special. So the people we were working with really, like they only want people who they feel are trying to do the right thing with these people be able to know this information. So that's all I can say. I can appreciate that. So thank you for sharing the transparency of that story, because it, it is something to keep in mind that we're, you know, we're certainly not in the business of exploiting people. And I agree that there are certain things that should be, you know, kept, kept moot. Yeah, and then they can have the choice to tell, to be in contact with people, whoever they want to be in contact with, rather than me having, being in charge of that. <laughs> yeah, you know, my, my question, I guess that I was aiming to, to get too from that the other was that if you can't speak to precisely where it is and who they are was there anything maybe about the characteristics of their manner of being you know that f because this is a female driven podcast you noticed some of those gender roles within how the cacao is harvested or you know maybe how the business transactions happen can you talk about that so everywhere that we went because they were so remote they didn't have any form of communication besides through radio so Steve would go on the radio a week before telling these villages, we're going to come visit you if you accept us. And then we would always have to have an indigenous person from that village come in with us. Because if not, then um, you're just not, you, you're, you have to be like welcomed in. So we would show up to these places and we wouldn't know if they heard us on the radio or not. <laughs> from what I saw, all like the women and men work together all day. So a lot of the villages that we went to, we'd take like two hour boat rides to get there. We'd hike in. And we get there and we were joking that it was Neverland because it was just like children everywhere, but no adults. So we traveled with Steve before all the chocolate makers got there as well. So we ha they'd have like town hall meetings to try and, and Steve would talk and the people and other Peruvian cacao technicians would talk about like how to preserve this, how to identify it, the right way to do it. And if you wanted to work with Steve on trying to find a buyer in the U.S., um, we can, but if you don't want to that's your choice. So we would have, they would have these um, town halls. And it was really interesting because all the women were on like one side and all the men sat on the other side, like they just don't sit together. Another day we were, um, we were trying to get out to a community and like our, the motor on the boat exploded. And so we were on the bank of this river for all day waiting for someone to pick us up. We had a woman from the village, an indigenous woman from the village to come with us to that village. And Steve was telling me like, oh, you should be the one to talk to her because it's like women talk more to women. Like she, so I would sit and like try and like I sat with her all day, but she definitely felt a lot more comfortable talking to me than any of the other men that we were with. So I don't know. I mean, it's like a nice connection that I had with all the women there, but I don't know if Elaine felt like had different experiences, but that's just what um, I found. This is Elaine. I'll just jump in. Um, no, I, I, you know, got largely the same sense that Amy did. I will mention that there's one. So in the beginning of our trip. And I should note that this is actually the, the second trip that several of us makers had made down to the same areas of Peru. So we'd gone the year prior as well. So in some communities, this was actually a, a second time going out and meeting some of the folks we'd met the year before. Um, but one of the cooperatives that we are, you know, have established a working relationship with is managed by um, a female manager, uh, which is really nice to see. She's you can tell by the way that people speak with her, the the co-op members and the co-op employees that they have a lot of respect for what you know what her opinions are and and her feedback. Um, and so, you know, I think most 
or maybe all women, you know, can appreciate seeing another woman in power uh, or in a leadership position, I should say, um, and receiving the respect that that anyone who is capable and talented and a good leader um, receives. And that was definitely the case with the manager of this co-op. This is Amy now. Um, we also became friends with and interviewed in the film Carmen Rosa Chavez, who is another strong, powerful lady in Peru, who's the director of agriculture. So she does a lot of work with cacao growers and cacao farmers there. And she's great as well. That's fantastic. Thank you for sharing those stories. You know, I think that's well appreciated through the, the listeners uh, of this podcast, but also in just knowing that there's progressive means to bring more equality. And, you know, I certainly can't speak to the experience, so I don't mean by any ways to like say what is or what isn't, but we certainly often hear of more male-focused cooperatives, although that could be changing. And I think within the craft chocolate scene, there's much more of um, an emphasis put on acknowledging who takes part and who's who's at the helm, you know, of one cooperative or another. Maya Mountain Cacao, uh, Emily Stone, and Maya Granite do a lot of work within. I, Elaine, are you familiar with which one I'm talking about? The yeah, so Emily and, and Maya do great work, and we actually work with them um, in sourcing some of our beans. We're you know we're we're very you know supportive and impressed by the work that they do. Certainly, I think I think there's an uh, all female run cooperative that they have within their portfolio, and I can't remember right now who it is. It might it might be La Chao Guatemala, but we'll double check on that and and add that into the show notes too, because you know perhaps some makers learn of this and decide that they want to have female focused bars come to life from the bean to the bar. Yeah, and actually, if I could jump in, so one of the things that I discovered recently, uh, wasn't aware of in 2015 when we first went down to Peru, but the cooperative I mentioned, um, they actually uh, have a great social program. And I think that that's part of what defines a a well-functioning farmer cooperative. Um, But one of the social impacts that they're trying to achieve is autonomy with their their female members, the female members having more autonomy. And so they actually uh, have a program where they segregate the beans coming from the female producers. And in a lot of cases, these might be, um, they might be widows, they might be unmarried women, but they are the heads of their household uh, who are farming the cacao. Um, and they actually, the, the cooperative will actually separate those beans out um, so that, you know, folks can uh, support specific subgroups within their cooperative. That's great. Thank you. I would just say from kind of where we were with this last uh, few moments of the discussion, moving on, so to speak, just from the female focus, but also within kind of everything you witnessed at Origin, I think we certainly can get a grasp through seeing bars on shelves uh, and visiting the websites of some of these makers that we cherish, that they have a passion to bring to light the stories of the farmers. And there's often a lot of recognition even within those both pieces that I mentioned of of where the cacao comes from and who is harvesting it and of the like. But I would also just uh, like to focus and, and ask you both because you were there, what is happening at Origins? So as you mentioned from the beginning, these families have you know, owned the land, tilled the land, had very specific, beautiful heirloom varieties, and are now potentially moving over to some uh, monoculture or more cash crops. And I'm wondering with your impact there, and them seeing you, you showing interest, if you recognize that there is now more attention to them staying in it. And if, you know, things like the Heirloom Cacao Preservation Fund, of which Mark Christian is the director and also will be part of your film, is seeing some of that come to life more so now that people from the outside are recognizing how amazing this cacao is. Um, I could, I guess I could jump in with the sort of first thought that I have. Um, the story that I heard often in both of our trips down to Peru um, was one that, that, that really struck me pretty profoundly emotionally. And that is that you would talk to these older farmers, um, farmers that look like they're probably at least grandparents, possibly great-grandparents. And the story that, that came up repeatedly, you know, in not just in one region, but in a few different regions, was how these farmers who, you know, they've been on the land for a couple of generations, um, but they're seeing that their children have 
very little interest staying on the land because they feel like there's not a lot of opportunity for them on it. And that's, you know, honestly, that's true. When you're a cacao farmer in some of these areas and you're selling your beans um, on the local market, uh, you're not making a profit or the profit that you might be making um, may not be lucrative enough to, to tempt younger generations, larger towns and cities. And, you know, I think that that's probably a reality of life wherever you go. And, you know, there's probably always the story of parents who would like to see their kids follow in their footsteps. But for some reason, there was something that just seemed particularly profound about the 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 wishes that the farmers had that at least one of their children, you know, would find interest in staying on the land and because it was something that was important to them and part of their families. And so I think that, you know, Amy mentioned this before, but being able to pay farmers prices that are well above market value um, or the market prices, I should say, for their cacao, it's not charity. It's not that we are just going to blanketly, you know, pay some dollar amount over the market share, but and working in a collaborative relationship where we can talk with the farmers and let them know what it is you know we're looking for and hoping for um, and find out from them you know the directions that they want to go and the challenges they might be facing. Um, I think that that sort of working and healthy relationship is one of the seeds of a bright future for cacao um, and a, and a way that uh, the growing craft chocolate industry and the the growing global sort of demand for chocolate overall can make sure that that these small farmers are not getting left in the dust. Really well stated. I'm just going to add something. Um, and another big thing I think that was really important was one that all these chocolate makers were coming down in person that they were saying like, this is real. There are like real people who have businesses who are interested in what I'm doing. And also Another important thing was like that they came back a second year. So it's like an ongoing project. It's not like they just came down once. So from what I, people who I've spoken to, why this trip was important is because they're coming back a second time. So they're like con- trying to continue this relationship. So the, so the people who they're meeting with, they can kind of see potential and working with them and they believe it. Right. That's really important. And Elaine, I mean, I think, I think you just so eloquently stated um, a lot of the hardships, yet also what you found so beautiful about being able to connect with these people in person with something that they offer and something you can create. Can you go into a bit more detail? Because we haven't had time or or yet to focus on, you know, what you're doing in Atlanta and almost why you were the woman chosen for this film, which is such an honor. But please um, go into that a bit. So Matt and I, um, we started making chocolate, or I should say we started learning how to make chocolate in 2013 when we uh, had moved our family to a small town called Puerto Viejo. It's a town that uh, is on the southeastern coast of Costa Rica. We had backpacked through it back in, in 2004 and 2005. And when we came back to Atlanta, it was always in our head as a place that we wanted to go back to. And in towards the end of 2012, Matt and I both decided that, you know, life was not going to get any easier in terms of being able to, to, to make a big life change. And that if we wanted to, uh, to go back to Puerto Viejo, we should just do it then. So that's, that's what we decided to do. We had three-year-old at the time and I was pregnant with our second child uh, when we decided we were going to go back to Puerto Viejo and we had no idea of chocolate on our mind. It wasn't you know, it wasn't even remotely on our radar. But we moved down to this town, we rented a house in the jungle. And we actually had a cacao tree growing in our backyard. But it took months before we even realized that that's what it was. <laughs> so we had this tree growing back there. Um, but while we were there, we um, got to know people who were making a tree to bar chocolate. So they were actually involved in the earliest stages of the chocolate making process, which is actually growing and tending and harvesting the cacao uh, before converting it into beans. And while we were there, we fell in love with the dark chocolate, which tasted really, really different from anything that we'd experienced in the U.S. at that point. And we decided that this was a skill that bring to Atlanta um, and expose to, to our, our neighbors here. So that's kind of the, the story of how we fell into chocolate making. But I think that maybe deeper than that, our interest in chocolate making extends back to you know, something a little bit further back in our professional histories, which was 
you know, the, the work that we chose to do. So Matt had been working on political campaigns, both nationally and statewide and local races in Georgia uh, for, I think, more than a decade. I had done a little bit of that work, but had kind of veered off into working with international humanitarian agencies. And so both of us had these very kind of liberal views on the world. And, you know, we had our very clear senses of what was right and what was wrong and how we wanted to see people treated in the world. And so when we first started learning about cacao and chocolate production in Costa Rica, it was really easy to connect the dots. We saw the farmers that were growing the cacao. These are farmers that are uh, in this particular area, you know, they're, they're doing all right. Um, so I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't want to characterize them as subsistence farmers, which is actually the case in a lot of the cacao growing areas in the world. You know, we, we came to learn pretty quickly the ways in which um, cacao producers being challenged by sort of the realities. And so I think that part of the realities that I'm talking about are, when I, as I mentioned before, growing global interest in chocolate. And as laws of supply and demand would dictate, you know, if there's the demand growing, someone's going to figure out how to increase the supply. And so what you see and what I'm sure a lot of your listeners are, are very familiar with are particular varietals or clones that are being created and planted um, that are fast growing, high yielding, disease resistant all of the qualities that a farmer would logically want in the crops that they're growing. But the, the dangers in this are that it then becomes very easy to start monocropping in particular areas, which is one thing that you see particularly with the clone CCN51. You see large swaths of the Peruvian Amazon being clear cut uh, in order to plant both this clone as well as other you know, fast growing varieties. So you've got the dangers of monocropping and you've also got the fact that in order to plant a quickly yielding uh, orchard, um, that you would clear down some of the native varieties that are there. And so that kind of goes back to our, our initial interest in, you know, not only going down to Peru, but being in part of the film that Amy and Tim are working on, um, which is really trying to highlight the dangers that native cacao faces, you know, with the prospect of these clones, you know, being planted and grown with preference over the native varieties. I'm glad that you made mention of that because it is a plight of sorts that we're very um, closely connected to what will happen within the future of cacao. And I'm sure that many of us enter this not only for the reason of loving chocolate, but also for this deep desire to change the landscape and ensure that this is an ingredient that we have for generations ahead of us and, and many of them. Absolutely. I would like to just spend a moment, Elaine, on, on this question that I think is a bit interesting to compare to what you saw at Origin in Peru, and that is the idea of passing something on to your next generation. And you have two children. Is it within your own mindset right now that, you know, they take on this business, this the chocolate business that you and your husband have started in Atlanta in the same way that within the Amazon, you know, they would want one of their children to maintain the cacao plantation? You know, I probably have to do some soul searching and some introspection to figure out why my answer is no. <laughs> no, you know, with my kids, so I have um, a son who is almost seven and a daughter who turned four. And actually, they're both incredibly interested in being employed by Chocolatels. Once they turn of age to work, I'll have them uh, fill out an application <laughs> and we'll interview them. They, you know, they're really into it. They have learned so much about chocolate and how chocolate is made and cacao. And to hear Eva Bell talking about the chocolate and asking which single origin bar I'm handing her, and um, because she knows the difference between what Nicaragua would taste like uh, and Ecuador, for example, has been really gratifying. And also as a parent, it's just kind of fun to see your kids seemingly so precocious about something like that. But no, I think it would be great if they wanted to stay in this business, but we're, I don't think Matt and I are, are necessarily, you know, I, we don't have our hopes pinned on them carrying on the business. We, we hope that they uh, get into whatever they like. But one thing, I guess, outside of chocolate, one thing that's been interesting and um, that we've appreciated them, I think, kind of seeing. So I guess in a way, I, I feel honored as a parent to be able to be doing something that I think they might be potentially learning um, something from, which is that it is possible to make things on your own. And that seems like such a simple statement, but, you know, it, it's, I think, a, a large 
portion of the population's experience that you, you know, you go to work, you work within the, you know, the knowledge economy and you get a job doing something where you're, you're spending a lot of time thinking and processing and analyzing, but maybe not quite creating. Um, and that's something that Matt and I have really, you know, really appreciated and enjoy about our work. And we're, we're be thrilled if Ronan and Eva Bell are, are picking something up from that. The potential for change makers within this younger generation, when they do have access to something that is handmade or artisan made, um, you know, that really struck me in that moment as, wow, you know, those are the food memories that we carry on and that and that ultimately change our career paths or just within our own kind of presence of who we are when we when we can say, oh, this is what it's supposed to be like. <laughs> they, don't, they don't have to have the experience that many of us, you know, I'm from the generation um, in the 1980s and I grew up on a lot of things that now I consider quite uh, poorly made, let's say. Right. Yes, I, I, I think we're part of the same generation. <laughs> awesome. And just making a nod to Atlanta for a moment, and both of you are welcome to step in here. The movie itself is, is more or less focused on kind of the consumer aspect because many of the chocolate makers, are, or rather all of the chocolate makers, are based in the United States. But Atlanta is a, a big metropolitan area. And I would just ask what you've noticed within having this business there just for such a short time, really three years, and how fast you've grown and the people you've been able to serve what it looks like when a population can get access to this and what you've learned from other chocolate makers that were a part of the film. Yeah, well, you know, I think that we had a huge advantage due to the population of Atlanta. So Atlanta um, is definitely a very food-centric city. Um, and we see that increasing, you know, as I've lived here for about 10 years now, you know, I, I feel like it's becoming more and more prevalent as time goes by. But it's it's a great center for food, not just Southern food, but, you know, really world-class food uh, in the city. And the people in Atlanta are exceedingly knowledgeable about food and, you know, are, are largely, you know, very passionate about understanding where their food comes from, meeting the producers when possible. The, you know, the farmer's market system in Atlanta is, is you know, is, is strong and thriving. And so we have definitely been very fortunate to be based in a city where people already uh, care deeply about quality food and knowing where their food comes from. So I think, and I think that that trend is, is definitely, you know, it's, it's of course not uh, exclusive to Atlanta. Of course, we see the same story in all of, I think, the country's major metropolitan areas. Areas. And then we also see it developing um, in some of the smaller cities in the U.S. too. And I guess the thing I'd like to say is in as much as there are challenges in the future of cacao and the future of chocolate, I think that there are a lot of uh, really great opportunities because of the direction that people are heading. You know, not just in Atlanta, but nationwide, there is this growing interest in sustainability, particularly in food, as well as in other industries. And um, people are increasingly seeking out artisanally made things um, and a, an interest in supporting local makers. And so I guess if there are any of your listeners out there are, are contemplating starting making chocolate or another type of food or, or have started down the process, you know, the, the challenges are, are real, but the opportunities I think are just as real uh, and really exciting as far as the receptiveness of the people out there. That's great. Yeah. And, you know, you did mention larger cities, but also smaller cities that might be catching on or already well on their way to this. Two other examples within the film, uh, French Broad Chocolates in Asheville, North Carolina, which is a small mountain town that has an amazing craft scene. And Ryan Burke, also within the film, out of Parliament Chocolate in Redlands, California, which is about, I believe, 70 miles, maybe less because traffic always throws me off, but let's say 30 miles outside of Los Angeles that happens to serve his local community very well and has also additionally added on an ice cream shop that uh, um, that incorporates this craft chocolate into all of their artisan ice creams, or rather just, let's call them great ice creams. Yeah, we were just, um, this is Amy, we were just in Redlands a couple weeks ago um, with Ryan filming some stuff there. And yeah, that community was so impressive to me. Ryan has three, maybe four ice cream stores now, and he really cares about where he gets his ingredients from. And that's why he started Parliament Chocolate was because he knew where all his other ingredients were coming from, but not the chocolate. When we were there, we went and visited, I guess in Redlands, they have some of the oldest orange groves 
heroes in the world. The town has like a lot of pride, it seems, with that being able to to know the farmer. So that was really interesting too. So we went to an orange grove and talked to the farmer and it was a really similar story because Ryan was saying it's no different than what he does at home because at home he gets oranges from the farmer there because that's important to him and that's what he's doing when he goes, you know, abroad on sourcing trips. It's the same thing. It's like trying to meet the farmer and have a relationship and make sure payment is good. And so yeah, Redlands was a great example of a small town. That's wonderful to hear. I mean, I I wouldn't have doubted that knowing what he's put forth into the market, but awesome to have it verified. <laughs> so his co-owner is his wife, Cassie Berg, and she's a very strong woman in chocolate as well. Like she, she's the accountant and basically runs all his ice cream shops and Parliament Chocolate by herself. <laughs> wow. Yeah, Not that's, that's a lot Ryan, of work. But like the, Ryan does the sourcing and a lot of other stuff, but she's definitely like the backbone behind him. Oh, that's great. And they're they're growing very quickly. I've noticed that their national presence has expanded. Elaine, would you talk a little bit to kind of, you know, where you are right now as a company and maybe some of your goals? Sure. As I said, we started learning how to make chocolate in late 2013. And then when we returned to the States, we were, you know, of course, still very much in, in, you know, learning what we were doing and how to use equipment and starting to get into sourcing beans and other ingredients and all of that. Um, but we didn't officially open until we um, opened at the Crog Street Market in uh, in town Atlanta uh, at the end of 2014. And so we are just about coming up on our second year sort of operating, um, I guess, professionally. You know, we we definitely feel very much the, the increased interest in chocolate overall, but then also this growing interest in, in craft food and, and ethically and transparently made food. And so we actually have, we're having a tough time kind of keeping up with our customer demand, which sounds like a crazy thing to mention as a challenge, but the day to day, it actually ends up being pretty challenging. And so one of our biggest limitations is the size of our space. We actually make our chocolate in about 250 square feet in this really popular food hall uh, and food market in Atlanta. And so in order for us to to be able to keep up with our current demand and, and grow, we need to find more space. And so we're actually actively looking around Atlanta for the the right location for our next place. As much as building community is important to us with our with the farmers that we work with at Origin, um, and not just the farmers, because we're not large enough, frankly, to be able to source all of our beans directly, although that is the goal for where we'd like to, to head uh, in the coming years. Um, but we also work with ethical and transparent brokers uh, and other chocolate makers who organize sort of group purchases. But we'd like to grow into a larger space. And, and actually, it's not just a matter of like wanting to do that, but uh, it's, it's a necessity for us at this point. Congratulations. That's a big step. Yeah, it's exciting. It's it's challenging. It's oh, so what I was saying, I'm sorry, is you know, we're looking to build and foster community with our the producers and the other people that are in our supply, you know, in the supply chains that we use. But we also want to to have that same sense of community here in Atlanta. There's a lot of development happening within Atlanta that is based on walkable neighborhoods, sustainability, and you know, improved uh, public transportation. So Matt and I are, are working really closely with landowners and realtors and just making sure that, that we don't end up choosing a place where we, in effect, are creating a, a business that doesn't seem in keeping with the, the neighborhood. But what we'd like to do instead of that is to be able to build um, a new location that's a source of new jobs and a source of income to people in the area and then also can be a place that people can go to and and enjoy community. I hear what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely in many cities across the country right now, and I'm sure that this is happening within North America and also overseas in Europe, etc. But on, on one end, the draw to what once was known as Main Street USA, where you had everything you needed within a block or two because all of the vendors were there together in an area. 
And I, I see that happening in a lot of pockets here in Denver. It, it sometimes is, as you're saying, this, this growth of development that affects real estate. It is important to keep in mind that balance of how we can sustainably grow all elements of, of our businesses while, you know, some of the tenants that we have as a business are sourcing sustainably, definitely on, on all levels. I appreciate that you made a mention to that. It's um, it's a tricky thing. I think luckily there are enough smart and talented and thoughtful and caring people <laughs> who are who are you know wanting to make sure that the growth happens in a smart and humane way. Totally. And going back to the film on this, I envision the old kind of movie halls with their placards promoting this film and that sensation of community and understanding where things come from. So I'm very much looking forward to the film being produced and and put out there to the world so that we can be in our towns and, and go see it at our local movie theater. Yeah, hopefully. That's the plan. We're going to be crossing our fingers for you, certainly. Are there any final closing comments that either of you would like to mention or something we didn't get to talk about regarding setting the bar that is imperative for the audience to know? I just wanted to jump in and make sure that Amy understands that, you know, Matt and I are so excited to be a part of this and honored that you felt like we could contribute to the film uh, and to the work that you guys are doing. So we're really excited for this film to come out. We're also, you know, just really thankful that the craft chocolate industry, and by that, you know, I'm including... uh, the community in a larger sense, including people who are in various parts of the supplies and value chains. But it's it's great that the industry feels so collaborative and uh, generous. And the other chocolate makers that Matt and I were traveling with um, have been making chocolate for longer than we have. And their generosity of advice and experience and wisdom and information, um, you know, was something that was not only helpful to us, but just reaffirmed that this is a sort of industry that we are really, just really excited to be a part of, and that you've got caring, smart people who don't view each other as competition, but more as as collaborators. I'll expand on that. This is Amy again. I think one of the things that was also really interesting to us before we even met any of the chocolate makers was that all everyone was working together when... I feel like in other industries, you'd want to keep certain secrets to yourself or, you know, but it really seemed like everyone just wants craft chocolate to do well. Yeah, the generosity of everyone has been great with us as well. Like even um, like, for example, Dan, like Greg from Dandelion, he didn't go on the trip, but he's like a huge part of helping us with our Kickstarter. And he's been so helpful. And Dandelion has been really supportive, even though they're not a big part of it. Like when Tim met with Greg, he was like, oh, I just like your film. I don't even need to be in it. Just let me know what I can do to help. And then also the Smooth Chocolator in Australia is also donating bars for so the Australian audience can be um, a part of the film as well, even though they're not in it either. And then we just got like a Peruvian chocolate company reach out to us saying that they wanted to donate chocolate bars so it can be like our Kickstarter could also include people from Peru. So it just seems like everyone wants to be involved, whether they're in the film or not, because they like the message and it's all working together. Indeed. Yeah, we've we've actually had this come up on the podcast before, you know, because in one way or another, whether you're at Origin or in the chocolate factory, you're dealing with what I like to call the ego equalizer. And for me, cacao is that, that it's always keeping me in check of just how difficult it is to work with, but yet how promising and inspiring every piece of that is. You know, when I receive the raw beans, they're gorgeous. They then smell amazing when I roast them. And, you know, that that final taste that just can can put us all into this place of ecstasy, if you will. So I've also been f- very fortunate to, to have many of the names that you mentioned here collaborate with me on my recent projects. So it's it really is an industry of giving and that's that's something that we should acknowledge and and give thanks for. So thanks thanks to both of you for for making note of that. Yeah, and I like when we first got to Peru because Tim and I hadn't met any of the chocolate makers. We just talked to them on Skype, and I remember the first night when they all arrived, we were like so relieved that they were all cool. We're like, thank God, like that they're nice and we like them because that would have made everything a lot harder. But yeah, we were so fortunate that we got along with everyone really well and everyone was like so helpful. Awesome. You and Tim are super, super easy to get along with too. So I think that you guys oh. 
<laughs> get some good credit there for that. <laughs> well said. And so we have within the industry, actually, one of the, the largest chocolate conferences coming up next week. That is Northwest Chocolate Festival, including the Unconference, which will be happening on Thursday and Friday, the 10th and the 11th. You both are going to be there in, in some form or another, uh, whether that's you or your partner or just your brand. And let's also mention the screening that is going to be taking place. Yes, we're, we're going to be presenting at the Northwest Chocolate Festival, and I believe our slot is November 12th at 2 p.m. We are going to be showing the trailer and also there's going to be representatives from the film who are going to do like a panel and a discussion about what they're trying to do and why it's important. So it would be great if your listeners could join us. But if they want to see the trailer beforehand, it's on our Kickstarter page right now under Setting the Bar Film, where you can watch the trailer there and see some amazing chocolate prizes that these chocolate makers have very generously donated. And there's some really cool experiences on there, chocolate experiences, chocolate products that are really cool. They are cool. Yeah. Okay. So that, that wraps it up for Northwest. And again, just to be um, making mention, I'll be adding this to the show notes so that you can follow along. And if you're going to be there, be sure to say hi to all of us. It was such a pleasure, Amy and Delaine, to have both of you here. We're really proud of the work that you're doing in craft chocolate. And uh, this, you know, this means the world literally to so many people that this documentary happens. Thank you. Thank you, Laura. Thanks so much for having us. Indeed, indeed. Okay, well, um, until next time, folks. Thank you, Amy and Elaine, for being well-tempered. To our listeners, thank you for being a part of this journey to discover women in chocolate. Be sure to go to the show notes at weekendchocolate.com forward slash podcast to learn what cacao means to Amy and Elaine and get the scoop on their chocolate in the cosmos answers. I look forward to seeing many of you at Northwest Chocolate Festival and the Unconference in Seattle. If we don't cross paths, be sure to join our Facebook group, Well Tempered, to hear about future podcasts, connect with chocolate peers, and continue the conversation. Well Tempered is produced and edited by me, Lauren Hynek. Our intro music and closing song, Chocolate Store, is by Anna Garcia. Thanks again for being here, and stay well tempered. What you will be when you get older The only thing I have clear is just to make this place A big she looked at me and with her voice eyes she answered If you want to make this place a sweeter world Just sweet.